This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Warner Media 150, premiering A La Calle on HBO Max. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. A La Calle is a firsthand account of Venezuelans reclaiming democracy in their country, the abuses suffered through dire humanitarian conditions, and the use of politically motivated torture against critics of Nicolas Madero. Using a network of clandestine cameras, it took the filmmakers behind the documentary three years to capture footage depicting the brutality of Maduro's dictatorship. In this episode, Alakaye co-director and producer Max Caicedo and Venezuelan opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez join Washington Post Live to discuss the documentary and the future for Venezuelan human rights. Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Venezuela is one of the top three oil-rich nations, if not the richest in the world, and yet the nation, and yet the South American nation, has been rocked by a failed economy exacerbated by a repressive government. Just how failed and how repressive is powerfully presented in the documentary A La Calle, which brings life in Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro under a withering microscope. Joining me today is the film's co-producer, Max Caicedo, and opposition leader, Leopoldo Lopez, whose fight for free and fair elections in Venezuela is one of the central storylines of A La Calle. Max Leopoldo, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, thank you for having there. us. Wonderful. Great to see you both. There's some news we need to get to before we get into the details of the film itself. Leopoldo, Venezuelan uh, government officials as well as opposi opposition leaders met recently in Mexico for a series of talks in which both parties agreed on a few action, action items to move forward. Uh, this kind of dialogue, especially after seeing the film, this kind of dialogue would have been impossible a few years ago. What can you tell us about these meetings and what change happened to allow this to happen? Well, I'm, I'm not allowed to give uh, all the details because we have a spokesperson uh, who's Gerardo Blight, who's the person um, designated to give all the details about the process. But I can tell you the following. It's not the first time we engage in a process of negotiation with the dictatorship. Uh, this uh, might be the, the sixth round of, uh, of attempting to have a negotiation. For this time, uh, we have the lessons learned from the previous processes. One of them was that we spent a lot of time uh, putting together an agenda with uh, uh, the agreement and also the mediation of Norway that has been participating in this process since 2019. And the other issue that is a lesson learned and is a different um, aspect from this negotiation than the previous ones is that we have a much uh, more engaged in international community. So each country has a, uh, a country that is sitting on the, uh, on the negotiation table. Uh, by the side of the dictatorship, Russia is sitting on the negotiation table and representing the democratic sectors of Venezuela we have um, the Netherlands that is representing our, our position. Uh, beyond that, there are groups of nations that are part of what's called the uh, fr uh, friends of the process that are also engaged in supervising, not supervising, overseeing the process. 
Um, we don't have huge expectations, but we believe that this is a way forward. And as for the objective of this negotiation, we have put as a priority a timeline for free and fair elections. If you saw the documentary, the documentary uh, presents the fight for free and fair elections of a nation that has been crushed by a dictatorship that became more and more brutal against the large majority of Venezuelans that were calling for free and fair elections. That has been our goal when we went out to the streets in 2014. That was the moment in which I was uh, thrown into prison and sentenced to 14 years in prison for calling to protest for free and fair elections. That was the, uh, the, the calling of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in 2017 that the movie portrays very well. Uh, with different stories that portray the motivation, the frustrations, and the hopes of many different sectors of the Venezuelan people. And that was also uh, what was portrayed as a priority in 2019 when Juan Guaido was recognized as the legitimate president of Venezuela. And it continues to be that objective. Uh, and I need to say this, that this is the same call that the people from Bielorussia, from Myanmar, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, are also screaming. So I think it's very important that this documentary is not seen as an isolated case of Venezuela, but it's the case, it's the circumstance of many nations that are fighting for freedom through free and fair elections. Um, before I get to you, Max, one more question for you, Leopoldo. And uh, given everything that you, that you have said, are you hopeful then that um, these talks, and you say that these are the sixth talks that have happened, that this is, will lead to bringing democracy to Venezuela? Well, I, I can tell you that, of course, that I'm hopeful. That, and of course, that I hope that this is the opportunity that, that brings a solution to, to the deep political crisis that we have in Venezuela. Uh, and the deep crisis that we have in Venezuela, humanitarian crisis, the largest immigrant crisis in the entire planet today, the largest humanitarian crisis in the continent today. But the origin, the core of the problem is political. So yes, I do hope that we have a political solution that can uh, traduce to humanitarian, economic, and social benefit of the Venezuelan people. But I, of course, have my reservations because I know that the dictatorship will want to hold to power. And that is why it's absolutely necessary that we have the support and the companionship in this process of the nations that have engaged uh, this new round of negotiations in Mexico, but as I said before, with the participation of many other nations. Now, I was going to save this audience question that we have for a little bit later, but since we're in this, let me bring up this question that comes to us from Ireland, from Dorothy. And she asks, what are the chances of free election, elections in Venezuela in this decade? Well, um, I mean, again, I, I am hopeful. We will have uh, elections in, uh, in, in, in the upcoming months, but they are not free and fair. Uh, we had elections uh, less than a year ago, but they were not free and fair. So the question is not when we are going to have elections, but when we are going to have elections with minimum conditions that make him close to being free and fair. 
Uh, when is that going to happen? I hope the sooner. Uh, that's what we are pushing for in these negotiations. That's the, 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 may, the major um, claim of the Venezuelan people. And I, I hope that we have free and fair elections very soon so we can start solving the problems of the millions of Venezuelans that are suffering today. Uh, Max, uh, finally, I'm bringing you in here and to the point um, that Leopoldo just uh, pointed out that the suffering and sacrifices being made by the Venezuelan people. Congratulations on a film that shows that shows what the sacrifices and suffering uh, is like uh, in very in a very real way. A lot has happened in Venezuela since. The final scene in your movie where the de facto leader Juan Guaido, who um, Leopoldo just mentioned, is talking to members of the military who've defected and sworn allegiance to the opposition party. How did you decide to end the film with that scene? Well, I think I think it's an, when you take on a project as a document as a documentarian or as any filmmaker who has to engage with something of ongoing significance. You kind of have to make some artistic and moral and ethical choices. Um, you know, what do you want to show? What don't you want to show? What is the message you want to leave your audience with? And I think, you know, our documentary shows a lot of suffering, a lot of sadness, uh, and that is an important thing that we needed to convey because what's going on, like Leopoldo's mentioned, is one of the worst humanitarian crises on the planet um, and historically for the region. So we had shown that, but another thing that we had seen and that we had learned throughout the process is there are figures like Guaido, like Nixon, like Federica, and like Leopoldo, who are relentless and tireless in their efforts to restore democracy and to alleviate some of the humanitarian problems. And those are the people, and that's the type of audacity and perseverance that you need to, to solve these types of things. And so we felt that ending at that point was the best thing that we could do for the cause and for. Uh, what's going on as opposed to perhaps a different point which you know may have left less hope and less optimism um you know that is the decision we made as filmmakers and the co-director nelson uh, who is venezuelan uh you know we wanted to leave on a positive note as opposed to something more negative you know i should have the next question i'm going to ask i realize i should have started with this with um with you max because the logistics of making this movie uh, are, are fascinating. The first 10 minutes demonstrate how dangerous things were on the ground. How were you able to get that footage and lots of the other footage you um, portray or present in A La Calle? That was definitely the first challenge we had to face, uh, the first test, if you will, um, when we got connected with the executive producer, Greg Little, who had um, access to Leopoldo's story, but also uh, had the interest in creating this project, the first question was like, okay, well, I've approached other people, other film crews, other documentarians about this project, and all of them say, no way, you're crazy, we're not going down to Venezuela, it's too dangerous. And so his first question was asked to me and to Nelson um, was, can you do this? And the answer was yes, but the only way we're going to be able to do it is if we empower local creatives, local Venezuelans who understand and have lived that life underneath dictatorship and underneath that type of censorship. Um, unfortunately, many of the people who helped us with this project had to be remain unnamed or could had to be named uh, in pseudonyms because of the danger to them being posed by 
being directly involved in a project like this. But what we did is we leaned very heavily on local creators because they understood how to move in Caracas, how to move in a place where intelligence, uh, like the intelligence officers like the Sabine are constantly looking for people speaking out and publishing things against the government. And by allowing them to maintain control or, or to be the boots on the ground, um, I think that was what allowed us to stay active for so long. We were filming for oof, five years or the project was active for about five years. And mm -hmm. I just don't think that if I had gone down or if Nelson had gone down or if we had gotten people who weren't familiar or who take certain things for granted living in a place like America and trying to go down to a place like Venezuela and operate, um, you know, I think we wouldn't have had any luck uh, being able to track the progress of everything for so long. And so that's what we did. It was very difficult. I will say it's very hard to direct from afar, encrypt all your footage onto a hard drive, smuggle it out of a country, and then review the last three months of footage that you've been collecting, hoping that it was what you wanted. Um, it's very, very difficult to make a film that way. But I think that's the type of thing you have to be doing if you <clears throat> prioritize the safety of your crew more than anything. So several times I've mentioned um, how the film uh, Alacalle depicts the, the, the sacrifices and suffering of the Venezuelan people. Uh, one scene that shows the lengths some Venezuelans have gone to survive, uh, I want to show right now. Let's have a, have a look at this, and Max, I'll ask you about it on the other side. And just as that clip was, was fading out was the key scene. I mean, it talks about how um, people in Venezuela are, are starving and, you know, he is in a sewer. He and the other gentleman are in a sewer, pulling things up clearly from the <coughs> sewer floor. But at the very end of that clip, we, we faded out just a little bit too soon. You can see they found what looks to be two pieces of, of gold jewelry, which I'm assuming they will then take to turn into cash to then try to buy food if there's food in the supermarkets. Uh, as you mentioned, this has been a five-year project, Max. Did you expect to see that kind of deprivation before you started working on this film? That's a really difficult question. Um, it's hard to know what my expectations were going into this project because I think, I think as someone who's lived a relatively privileged life or a very privileged life, um, you know, I've been born and raised uh, in the United States and in a stable government where my money continues to have value in a way that I can predict and the supermarkets are always full with the food that I want. Um, it's hard to understand or to imagine the types of poverty or types of desperation that are out there. And I don't know that five, six years ago when I started this project, I was fully aware of what that could mean and where that can go. In fact, I don't think most people are fully aware they think they can understand it and I think they can kind of imagine it because they see figures or they've watched a lot of CNN clips and all that. But I think there's a stark difference between even watching our document documentary and then getting to know people like this, um, like we were able to with Randall, uh, for example, and what that desperation does to you psychologically beyond just what you physically have to do to survive. So no, I, I don't think I was really prepared for that um, or prepared to see those types of images or to see that type of desperation. But I think more than anything, I don't think I was prepared myself emotionally and psychologically to be so close to that type of suffering. Um, it is something that will stay with me forever. And I think that it's going to be, I mean, I, I've already thought about it. Like 
if I do another project moving out of, you know, moving forward, I will have to be really careful maybe not to do something on the subject matter like this, or I'll have to take some time because it is very difficult. And I also think that uh, I, I don't mean to go on too long, but as a documentarian, you're kind of forced to straddle this like thing as like creating a piece of entertainment for people to consume and then also becoming an activist just by nature, being close to this type of suffering. And then, you know, and then just having a job, right? Like being your job. And, and so there's like this like weird mix that happens and you're creating this film and you're ultimately in a way creating a piece of entertainment so that people go on HBO and watch it and like it and are moved by it. But that isn't like, it, it's hard to know that that's what you're doing after you spend this much time doing it. Really what right. you want is something like this to move the needle. You know, and that's probably, kind of what oh, sorry, this thanks. work is right now is about. Sorry, mm -hmm. now, that was it. That's <laughs> what this work right now with talking to people like you. Mm -hmm. and, and sorry for, for cutting you off there. Um, you're both coming from places outside the United States. So the, uh, the technology is, is a little tricky. Leopoldo, there were several scenes from inside your home when you were on, uh, under house arrest. Take us back to the experience of being on house arrest and still filming yourself while you were being monitored? Well, I, uh, I, I was without, without freedom for seven years. I spent four years in a military prison. Then I was taken to house arrest. Then I was taken back to a military prison. Then I was taken back to house arrest. And then um, I escaped from house arrest and went to the Spanish embassy where I spent a year and a half. In total, I spent uh, almost seven years with um, my freedom confined. And all of the stages were very different from each other. Being at home was very difficult. I think it was the most difficult uh, part of, of the seven year period because they made my home a prison, not just for me, but for my children. I have uh, small children. Manuela was eight years old when, when I went to home arrest. Uh, my son Leopoldo was five and my daughter was um, a newborn. So my house was surrounded by the military political police. Uh, it was completely monitored. Um, I had not one, but two um, electronic bracelets in my ankle. And I had to take four pictures every day as a hostage with the newspaper of the day at 6 a.m., 12, 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. Uh, so that was my day today. Even though that I was sure that I was being monitored or that I didn't really know to what extent I was being monitored, um, I was very active in my activism. I, had, I have never ceased to be active. Even when I was in solitary confinement, um, I would do what I could to outreach and to collaborate to the process of liberalizing our country. So I never stopped um, talking when I could. And that's how I engaged a conversation with, uh, with Max and Nelson. Uh, we had you know, hundreds, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, a hundred hours uh, of recorded conversations um, all throughout my period when I was in house arrest and, and a little bit when I was in the embassy. So they have uh, that day today, and I think that comes out in the film, 
that there are different people um, confronting this process of a dictatorship from very different angles. But what's most important is that given that diversity uh, of people in different areas of Venezuela, geographically different sectors of the social spectrum in Venezuela, uh, we all have the same hope. And that hope is freedom. And I think that you don't know what freedom is about until you lose it. I knew what freedom was about after spending four years in a military prison in a two by two cell with a lock the size of a cinder block and with guards that were very hostile. That's when I learned what freedom was about. That's when I truly learned what freedom was about because I knew it from what was being taken away from me. And I think that countries like the United States, European countries that have freedom, sometimes they don't realize how fragile freedom is. And we were a country in Venezuela that were, was an example of freedom and democracy for the rest of Latin America. We were an island surrounded by dictatorships, an island of democracy and freedom surrounded by dictatorships. But we didn't know how fragile freedom and democracy was. So we started losing step by step different types of freedoms. And those different types of freedoms were not at sometimes not strong enough to engage the entire population. But we had many instances of having millions of people go out to the streets and then unfortunately the dictatorship to remain in power. But people would go out again. And I hope that that is that the situation that we see in the future. I, of course, have learned many things about going out to the streets. I have always been an activist, completely engaged in what nonviolence is about. We have learned the theory, we have practiced the practice, we have trained our people, we have gone out not once but many times out to the streets and promote nonviolence. I truly believe in this, but I believe now that just nonviolence protests are insufficient. And if you look at different countries that over the past years have gone through similar protest cycles like Venezuela, all of us are in the same situation. And I will mention a few, Myanmar, Bielorussia, Russia, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, just to name a few, all of us have had massive street protests. But unfortunately, in all of those countries, still remains the autocratic regime in power. So Alakaje gives you a very good insight of what nonviolence uh, protests are about, about the motivations of people that go in the first line of that, they're taking risk-taking approach to protesting. But it also opens a reflection, what else is needed in order to have political change and in order to promote free and fair elections. Leopoldo, let me uh, take you back to something you said, because I'm trying to understand. You said that um, you took pictures, you took four pictures throughout the day, every day of yourself with a newspaper, like you were a hostage. Was that something you did on your own or did the government that was no. holding you under house arrest, did they make you do that? No, they made me do this. My house was okay. surrounded. There were at least 20 officers of the uh, political police surrounding my house. Uh, right. Sometimes it was 30, sometimes uh, it was less, but they, I had two electronic ankle bracelets, not one, but two. 
and uh, every day they would ask for a picture side by side with the guards that were guarding me to send the picture with the uh, newspaper of the day. It was a way of them keeping record that I was there every day, all throughout the day. Um, and as I said before, yeah. this was a period that was very difficult because this uh, hostility uh, was not only against me, but it was also against my, my, my children specifically. Um, and, and that was, oh, you know, it was even harder than spending time in, in the military prison because, you know, I, I decided to present myself voluntarily in 2014. And I knew what, what was going to happen. And I knew that yeah, I was most probably going to spend years in prison. And that's what ended up happening. Okay, it looks like Leopoldo uh, has frozen there. Um, Matt, I, 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 I hope we still, we still have Max with us uh, and if he, yes you are you are still here you know what i want to do in the little time that we have left i want to play w one more clip um from a la calle and I, if i rem if memory serves this is with the young woman who uh, aspiring doctor in in venezuela let's play that and show to, uh, i'll talk to you about it on the other side and Max, that's Federica, who just even in that clip, you see just how incredible she is in terms of her resourcefulness, but also her fearlessness in doing things that could earn the ire of the of the Maduro regime. What can you tell us about what's happened to her since the film? The statement that Federica and what Max? the Green Cross did. Mm -hmm. Oh, Keep going. can you hear me? Oh yeah, yes, yes. Um, I think what they—it's important to understand that what the Green Cross and what Federica was doing was not politically affiliated. Um, they were very always were very important to emphasize that for obvious reasons, but also um, the way they administered help was to uh, protesters, to anyone in need, to neighborhoods that were lacking clinical supplies, even to um, members of the national police uh, during the protests if they were injured or required assistance. So. Um, I don't, I think that the risk to her was perhaps not quite the same as perhaps for uh, a Nixon, um, and that's because their actions were completely non-politically aligned. Um, but since then, she has continued to work in um, Venezuela, in Caracas, and she uh, actually, um, I spoke to her not too long ago, and she's working in the hospital in Caracas, and the situation has not gotten any better. Um, there's still a serious lack of medical supplies and she's still struggling to aid people with uh, lacking resources. You know, she has the know-how, she doesn't have the tools or the medicines to, uh, to, to help them. Max Caicedo, um, thank you very much for your film um, and, and for being here. Alacalle premieres on September 15th on HBO Max. And I also wanna thank Leopoldo Lopez, who unfortunately, his signal dropped um, there, as you all saw, but I think he left us just with the right message, which he said, you don't fully appreciate freedom until you have lost it. And I would love to have asked him about what message he has for the American people, especially since what we suffered through on January 6th. Max Caicedo, Leopoldo Lopez, thank you both very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. 
And thank you for tuning in. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our upcoming interviews and to register. In the meantime, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.